You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, leaders get the behaviors that they exhibit and tolerate. And so if you are slightly jaded, slightly cynical, slightly afraid of these new technologies or new approaches, then that will be an amplifying chamber for all of those around you. And and your organization will not thrive in this post-pandemic world. But if you can be like a lightning rod for change to help be the confidence and the voice that, that this new path will be better and, and to then demonstrate through data and successes that it is actually getting better, then you will help drive a much better future for your organization. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at some trends and predictions surrounding digital transformation in government for 2021. I like to call them predictions sure to go wrong. That's generally what happens. Last year, I had some thoughts on where the year would go, and then the pandemic changed all of that. But 2020 was really a year that no one could have foreseen. The response from government would have been almost unpredictable for many. As horrendous as the pandemic is, the public sector organizations all over the world have shown incredible resilience and flexibility. They quickly pivoted, broke down barriers, they shared information amongst themselves, and continued to deliver excellent services on behalf of their citizens. Technology has really been the foundation of this achievement. Forward-thinking governments and agencies understood the importance of digital solutions to deliver these citizen benefits. Remote working technology, IT modernization, and cybersecurity all became vital last year. Yet, public sector organizations know that they have to do more. Research found that 60% of U.S. government officials felt that the pandemic has accelerated their digital transformation, which I'm sure none of you are surprised. And the story is similar around the world. COVID is forcing the public sector to rethink their operations. The ability to bring more value at a lower cost is one of the primary drivers, as well as remote work and security around that. They have to get ready for this and do it in the right way. The pandemic was bold and it was radical and it changed everything. And it's gonna take public organizations to be bold and radical to rebound and advance their mission in new ways that are necessary on behalf of their citizens. To help me look into the future at what some of those bold and radical advances could be, I've asked Dave Wenergren, the former chief information officer for the U.S. Navy and the current CEO for the American Council for Technology Industry Advisory Council, better known as ACT-IAC. He leads the organization that's dedicated to advancing the business of government through the application of technology. Prior to taking the helm at ACT-IAC, he served as the managing director for Deloitte's public sector business. And during his career in government, not only was he the CIO at the Department of the Navy, but was also the vice chair of the U.S. government's federal CIO council. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with me. Absolutely, Brian. It's great to be here with you today. The pleasure is all mine. I'm, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. And at the beginning of every year, I feel like uh, everyone in this industry starts to look at what the year ahead uh, has to bear for um, whatever industry they're in. So it, for us, for government technology, and that's kind of been um, what I've been going through. So I'm really looking forward to kind of fleshing some of these topics out with you. But before we start, why don't you give everybody listening uh, a glimpse into your background? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, so I did a long time in government. Um, I was an IT guy. 
I didn't start out that way in government. I went to work as a management analyst right out of college working for the Department of the Navy, but at some point moved into the technology space and uh, ended up being the CIO for the Department of the Navy and doing the CIO work for the Department of Defense and being vice chair of the Federal CIO Council. So it was a great run. And then, as is often the case, I, I moved on from there to a life in industry, most recently as a managing director at Deloitte. And I guess, as they say, having looked at life from both sides now, both from the standpoint of the government side of the technology market and the industry side of the technology market from both CACI and Deloitte standpoint, I now am the CEO of ACT-IAC, which is a nonprofit association that's been around for over 40 years. And its whole purpose in life is how to get government and industry to collaborate together to deliver better outcomes with speed and uh, you know, by virtue of collaboration of industry and government leaders. So, so I get to put into practice all the things I learned from both working in government and in industry. I'm really interested, Dave. So you, you did serve as vice chair on the, the federal CIO council. Was there anything you, you noticed, or you would say uh, patterns you saw that either CIOs were really good at, or they were, or you saw gaps for improvement um, just during that role because you were exposed to so many of them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say first and foremost, you know, there's a wonderful set of government leaders serving, choosing these careers of public service and sacrifice and making a big difference. And so, you know, I I was completely delighted with the set of leaders I got to work with and seeing the great ideas and great minds. And uh, I was vice chair of the Federal CIO Council when Karen Evans served the in the role now known as the Federal CIO, a great leader to work with. And, and as I said, some great CIOs from other agencies too. It is interesting though, because you know the federal government is a big entity and agencies are very different. And, uh, and, and so CIO jobs are also very different. And so the nature of CIO jobs, particularly when I was serving, but I think it's still true today, vary from, you know, are you a strategic business leader for the agency? Are you the network administrator for the agency and all flavors in between? So both the nature of the job changes and varies between agencies, but also then the priorities and imperatives and, and background and experiences the CIO brings to the table, bring to the table are very different. And so I think that creates an interesting dynamic about how do you build coalitions around common areas of interest. And and when I was serving on the Federal CIO Council, we made a lot of progress on trying to raise the bar on issues around cybersecurity and how to make better use of new technologies and sort of the beginnings of IT modernization work that continues on today. But it is really sort of important to make sure that CIOs are tightly bound to the heads of their agencies so that their work can be focused on the business outcomes that matter most to that agency. So I absolutely echo your sentiment around some of the really talented people serving in government right now. And before, one of the largest stigmas, I think, around government IT was how much they were lagging behind the private sector. And I think what the pandemic did beyond just accelerate digital transformation, which we I know we all know, is I think it really shined a light on some of the really talented individuals that kind of rolled up their sleeves and went to work and, and got the job done when the government needed them most. So absolutely echo that. When, when you talk about some of the differences, though, across the CIO community, and I agree, you look at, I mean, I think you look at any role within an organization and I think everybody brings different talents and they, they go about the role dif- in different ways um, because they all have a vision and it's one of the reasons why they're in that role. Did you find that starting where you did in the Navy, 
at a lower level and then working your way up into the CIO role gave you a different perspective versus some of the others that we're seeing now that are are moving from an executive role in private sector and, and jumping into kind of an SES role within a government organization. Did it give you that different perspective from the ground up? Yes, I think so. I think everybody's perspectives are kind of unique, but but you're right. I mean, I think having grown up in the mission of the Navy gave me a, a, a you know great emphasis, if you will, on the mission outcomes of the Navy. You know, ACT-IAC's bumper sticker is accelerating government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. And that focus on outcomes, I think, is what really helps to drive success. And you could have that focus on outcomes if you came from the private sector, where there's clearly a really strong motivation around, you know, financial viability, profitability, outcomes that matter, right? And also, if you come from the mission side of a government agency, there's that clear focus. And so it helps you avoid, you know, IT just for IT's sake. So oftentimes, technology becomes like the shiny object that we seek. And we in government agencies, we may get more liquored up about the new acronym that we're creating for the system we'd like to see developed, rather than focusing on the outcomes that matter. A, a, com, a concept that uh, Simon Sinek does a great job of talking about in his book, Start With Why. And, and the parallel book, I think, that matters is another is a book by Stephen M. R. Covey about the speed of trust, because government agencies are big, large, complex organizations. And inherently in large, complex organizations, whether they be public or private, there's an inherent low trust kind of environment. And uh, and so this idea about understanding the mission and the leaders and the, the culture of the organization becomes really important and can sometimes be a challenge for someone coming in from the outside because trust has to be built in order to, you know, make sure that outcomes are effective. And as Covey points out in his book, you know, there's a huge cost, both in terms of time and money, if you have to operate with a low trust environment. So I, I like kind of starting right there, um, because it's it's the first point that I made in the, the ebook that I just published around uh, 10 trends and predictions within government and public sector uh, technology. And it, you spoke to kind of technology for technology's sake. And oftentimes when the words IT modernization come out, I think sometimes uh, that gets confused with let's just throw technology at it. Um, But I think it's become more strategic. I think they're looking at the the legacy applications or the legacy infrastructure that needs to uh, be changed out to be able to support perhaps the new missions and the new expectations of government and take a look at what the next 10, 20 years um, are for, um, for, for their stakeholders. What are you, what are you seeing around IT modernization? That's, that's really, uh, piqued your interest. Absolutely. It is. I would say like the paramount issue still for government agencies. I will, I will say in advance of that, the, for your audience's sake, that the ebook is really good that you share with me, Brian. So I encourage all of your listeners to make sure they get a copy of it. Thanks. I appreciate that. The issues that you point out are top of mind for federal agencies. And, and I loved your comment about throw tech at it, because if you do just throw technology at the issue without thinking through the process change work that inevitably needs to be done and the outcome that really will matter and resonate with your customers and users, then you can end up just spending more money 
on on a situation that won't necessarily be better. And so, yes, IT modernization matters a lot. And and we should take some comfort in the fact that progress is being made. You look at the evolution over the last few years of the government cloud policies. The cloud smart policy, I think, is is was really well done, and it focused on the issues of uh, risk management and recognizing that security models in the cloud need to look different. And how can we t- do a better job of adopting commercial solutions more quickly? But of course, as you know, and your audience knows, you know, moving to the cloud is is a great step, but it is not by any means the end of the IT modernization journey. And and unfortunately, there's still a large number of federal agencies who are spending the majority of their IT budget sustaining the legacy infrastructure and systems. And, you know, that's not a, a path to success. There are, there are no successful companies that spend the vast majority of their IT budgets sustaining the old rather than developing the new. And so in addition to the mo- taking care of your infrastructure, taking care of the, you know, the infrastructure no longer supported by the manufacturer and things like that, there's this issue about how do we wrap our heads around the thousands of legacy systems and applications that still exist, even in a world where perhaps we've moved our infrastructure to the cloud. And so that legacy application rationalization process, you know, what systems do we need to keep? What systems need to be refreshed or updated? What systems need to be just thrown out and replaced is a crucial issue that government agencies will have to spend time on this year. You talk about speed of trust. I think as soon as you said that in my brain, I'm thinking cloud. It's been one of the biggest inhibitors, I think, over the past, let's say, 10 years um, in government is the, the security and the trust around these cloud environments, public and private, um, even though it's it's even though it's more of a public cloud world now in government. But um, is, is that still an inhibitor, you think, within government, especially with some of the uh, compliance initiatives in place like FedRAMP and others? Um, so I, I think it is a continuing journey that we have to go on together. I mean, there are some great successes of moving to the cloud within the government, and we should, you know, encourage more of those. Um, I, I will express my bias by saying, you know, I grew up being the Navy IT leader back in the days of implementing the Navy Marine Corps Intranet, a commercial outsourcing solution, um, the e-business sort of efforts of the Navy at the time. And so, you know, this recognition about that there are great flexibilities that the federal acquisition regulations allow for, but that we often don't take advantage of, I think continues to be a theme we all need to footstop on. That, um, you know, we've had a huge turnover in the acquisition workforce in the federal government. Uh, A great percentage of the federal acquisition workforce, contracting workforce retired, has been replaced. The average years of experience is lower than it was probably 10 years ago significantly. And so and so people become familiar with the basic elements of the FAR, but they may not feel as comfortable using all the flexibilities that exist. And there are great flexibilities that exist, commercial contracting, managed services, performance-based contracting. These are ways to jumpstart your process. And so the movement to commercial solutions rapidly in a way that allows you to you know, pay for the outcomes that matter is, is clearly the way to go for everything from moving to the cloud to business process outsourcing and shared services and things like that. And, and we have to all continue to rally around that thought because, you know, there are a number of government agencies that really shouldn't be in the business of IT operations. It's not their key mission space and it's not where their core expertise lives. But there are lots of companies who have just do a fabulous job and everything from, you know, cloud providers to the fact that, you know, there's not a Fortune 100 company that like 
builds its own payroll system or customer relationship management system. I mean, because there are providers that do that for a living. And so being able to take advantage of these commercial solutions and adopting them rapidly is the way that we will make, you know, big leaps forward in IT modernization. I want to double click there a little bit and talk about acquisition innovation and 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 part of that conversation is around kind of policy and legislation and we've seen over the past let's just say 12 months um since the onset of the pandemic and and everything really pivoted we've seen such an acceleration of technologies um that have been kind of thrust into the foundation of helping government be successful during this period of time and I'm not convinced that as we move forward, the legislation and policy side of things, or let's say the the innovation around acquisition, is going to keep up at the rate in which it needs to be. Um, we talk about DevOps, we talk about DevSecOps. Um, what about <laughs> DevLegOps, so the ability to be more innovative and and pivot from a legislation perspective to keep up with that? Is that something that um, that you're seeing is needed, or, or do you disagree? Do you think you've seen this area keep up? Well, I think your point is spot on. I mean, it's absolutely clear that IT modernization works best when it stays ahead of the pace of technology change. And as we all know, the pace of technology change is relentless. Do you think? Do you think that's possible? Do you well, think? I mean, I, it, it I happens so fast. Well, I think, see, I think it's all about how you do it. And that's why I get back to the, we'll come back to the statutes in a minute because it's definitely work that could be done there. But, but to my point earlier about the flexibilities that actually exist within the procurement rules that we, we have within the government, that, you know, if, if your idea is I'm going to spend years developing the requirements and then I'm going to buy something and own it myself and have to be responsible for maintaining it and upgrading it and sustaining it, you know, the likelihood that within the federal model of how we do acquisitions that you're going to stay ahead of the pace of tech technology and be ready for the groundbreaking change that you didn't anticipate is probably pretty low. But on the other hand, if you go to a commercial cloud provider, an AWS, a Microsoft, or Google, or anybody in the cloud, you know, they, they actually do this for a living. And so the likelihood that they will stay abreast of the rapidly changing pace of technology and allow you to buy what you need and let them be the ones who are worrying about, you know, it's time to switch out those boxes. It's time to move to this new tool is much higher. And so, you know, while I'll say managed services and performance-based contracting is not like a panacea, it is something we have to be thoughtful about because, you know, we know that government contracting practices sometimes aren't quite as fast as what you can do in the commercial private sector. And so why not leverage that that strength of the commercial sector? But but I do want to footstop this idea about, you know, we there is a lot of legislation in the IT business and it does tend to build upon itself. And so over the course of the years, you know, there's clearly some housekeeping that could be done to sort of streamline the, the legislation around IT acquisition. But if you did nothing different in terms of the rules about acquisition, there are still lots of opportunities that we don't take advantage of. As an agency, do you do rigid statements of work or do you do statements of objectives that talk about outcomes that you want to achieve and how you will measure those outcomes? Are you a believer in service level agreements and the power that they bring? Do you encourage innovation or stifle it? Do your proposals you know, punish people for doing alternative responses or do they encourage alternative responses? Because as we know, and, you know, and ACT-IAC's whole model of existence is for over 40 years, you know, if we actually talk to one another, we come up with better answers. And if your position is, I'm going to write a, 
you know, a really tight statement of work because I know the complete answer and what the future will hold and throw it over the transom to an industry provider, you will be limiting how they can respond to you. And uh, we won't get the outcomes that we could. Lowest price, technically acceptable contracting is fine for buying printers, really lousy for high <laughs> analytical services. I think that's a really great point um, because you can buy some really good printers that way. Um, let, let's move on to another area that I think is absolutely exploding and becoming a huge priority at not just the federal level, but very much at the state and local level. In fact, I'd argue even more so is citizen experience or customer experience. Um, what are what are your thoughts around that? And I think one of the things that we've seen is it, where public sector is constantly trying to keep up around the innovation happening in private sector from a, uh, a future of work perspective and how they accomplish their mission where it's lagged is really on the experience side and the, the different, uh, disparate devices that are available. I think we as citizens now have that expectation of an omni-channel, uh, engagement from whoever we're interacting with, whether it be a private organization, a, a government entity, um, what are your thoughts around customer experience and citizen experience? And where do you see that going over the next year? Yeah, that's a super point. You know, a couple of years ago, the Wall Street Journal had an article about, the, you know, what was the most disruptive force in technology at the time? And the answer wasn't a technology. The answer was you and me and our expectations about how we uh, how we will live our lives electronically, so to speak. When I went to work for the Department of the Navy all those many years ago in the last millennium when dinosaurs still roamed the earth, you know, by far <laughs> the best gear available to me was in my office. And by the time I retired from working for the Secretary of Defense, you know, I was carrying around better gear in my pocket in the form of my smartphone than I probably was getting at my office. And so this way that we're able to digitally live our life from that that smart device, where it's less about, you know, you have to use this application, but about a common platform where the applications that best work for me are available to me is, is an expectation that we now expect from our work as well. And so it's something we have to pay close attention to. Customer experience, you're right, is something that had to be focused on. And so, you know, the 21st Century Integrated Digital Experience Act from a couple of years ago was a, was a good step around trying to focus this idea around digital experience. There's no doubt about it that, that you know, underlying Agile and DevOps and, and all these sort of concepts that, you know, we try to do in the sort of modular way of developing IT solutions nowadays are all about if you engage the customer early and throughout the process, you're going to end up with a lot better outcome than if you, you know, go off in the you go off in the room by yourself and develop the IT solution and then come back and, and dump it on the customers. And so it is something that matters. It is something that we see uh, work in government to address, and it's something we're going to have to continue to focus on together. At, at the federal level um, specifically, what are you seeing around citizen experience? I think I, when I hear citizen experience, I kind of often think about where the rubber meets the road in those citizen portals where they're going to do anything from driver's licenses to uh, purchase building permits and things. Um, but at the federal level, um, from a citizen experience perspective, is it is it more around contact center automation or what, what are you seeing there? I, I, th I think it's a broad range of activities. And, you know, there, there are agencies like GSA that yeah. have really put a focus on customer experience and 
And I think that's good. One one of the places I might point your listeners to the podcast is, um, you know, if they go, if they go to our ACTIAC website at www.actiac.org, um, we've done a lot of work in preparation for the transition to a new administration. Um, we call it our Agenda 2021 project, and the capstone document is about, you know delivering outcomes and building trust. But there are three supporting papers, one of which is all about improving customer experience and transforming service delivery. And that paper talks a lot about the the things that are already happening in government and the next steps that we will need to take together to continue on this journey. Because it's this holistic recognition that, you know, that the customer, that employees and the citizens, right? So it's customer experience more broadly than just citizen experience. You know, everybody wants to be able to do things from any place at any time, be able to get to the information they need to get their job done in a self, you know, self-driven manner. And so, and so these issues around customer customer service and customer experience have just got to stay top of mind. So really closely aligned to that, in my opinion, is employee experience. Um, When I speak to citizen services, I think of two sides of the coin. There's the the UX and the citizen experience side of the of the service delivery, um, and the ability for that to be engaging um, and and omnichannel, and then on the other side of it is the back office side, that employee experience side, the ability to uh, provide them with the tools um, and and education needed to be able to provide a higher value uh, service on behalf of the citizens. Um, I know one of the priorities. Act IAC views over the next year is kind of the workforce for the 21st century. Where are you seeing um, some of those changes happening? Yeah, so you know, so employee experience is, is super important, and and uh, and like I said, there's a demand signal now. I mean, you know, it, it amplified by the pandemic, right? Because I mean, now we're we're a lot of people are working from home, and uh, they they expect to not be able to miss a beat in keeping up with work as they did from their office. And there sh- you shouldn't miss a beat. You should be able to be connected from anywhere to get the job done. This requires a continued focus on, you know, IT modernization becomes the linchpin, right? Because if you're, if you haven't modernized your IT, it's the agencies that haven't modernized their IT are the ones that had the biggest challenge quickly adapting to a virtual world. But more broadly, you know, the workforce issue is just crucial because, I mean, you know, we are all in sort of a war for talent, finding the right leaders to create this digital future that that we all want to be a part of. And so, you know, how do you, how do you not only attract in the right people to come into government that recognize the power of public service and, and, and the importance of serving the, the nation, but, but also, you know, are willing to come in and help guide the government to the future. And, and then once you've, attracted them how do you retain them i mean we've seen like an upswing of 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 hiring new young minds that are more adept at the technologies and solutions that will be part of the portfolio of the future eventually COBOL will not be as prevalent in the government as it still is now right and so so the future the future workforce is coming but i think the issue is like getting them to stay Right. And, and, and while I'm, I'm a big believer in the sort of fungibility of the workforce and you ought to be able to come into government, go into industry, come back to government and, you know, and, and we need to break down the barriers to doing that. We do need to have people leaving because they want to find another growth experience, not leaving because they found the experience in government not fulfilling. And so how do we make sure that we're giving them the technology tools that will make sure that they want to stay so that they can continue to contribute and create that brighter future? 
I think the back and forth you speak to is really well said because I do agree. You need to be able to leave government, go to private sector, come back, um, and and bring some of that innovation from uh, from what you've learned. But at the same time, there also needs to be a foundational element of of public servants that are are continuing driving that mission forward. Do you think the pandemic and this work from anywhere environment is something that today's government can really capitalize on? I hope so. You know, in the Department of Defense, we used to have a saying about is it is it a lesson learned or just a lesson observed? Because you know, there's a lot that we've learned over the last year about how you can adapt. And, and I give great kudos to the federal technology market and how they were able to demonstrate these new technologies that could be adopted by government very rapidly, even if they weren't already in place to allow us to not miss a beat in, in collaboration. And so kudos to both the government and industry. But, uh, but, but we can't stop there. And so we can't like go back to a world where like, you know, once there are more vaccines and we start to be comfortable being in public together again, that we, we don't build on the lessons that we learned about what this means, because clearly there was a message around, you know, number one, virtual technologies break down the barriers to participation, which allow us to improve the diversity of views and engagement. And there's a lot of power there. We saw it at act over the last year that more people from around the country participating in meetings and events, you don't have to travel and get TDY and all that kind of stuff. And so, and, you know, we had a lot of our, our industry members who talked about, you know, they actually have more contact with their government clients now than they did because you don't have to go through all the barriers of getting into the federal building and finding the appointment. You can just do a quick little Zoom or team session or whatever platform you use. And so how do we take that? And when we go back into the, you know, more of an in-person model, that it's a hybrid where we don't lose sight of the, how these technologies change the way that we could collaborate and, uh, and move forward. So we're going to have to make sure that, uh, that, that, that we stay positive and thoughtful about how to, how to build on what's happened in the last year, not say, well, that was like a crisis. We survived it. Let's go back to the old way of doing business. So I, I like that phrase, by the way, I'm going to steal it. The, is it a lesson learned versus a lesson observed? I really like that. Um, and, and some of the things that have been captured over the last year by government um, is in the form of whether it's structured or, or non-structured data, um, which kind of leads us into a, another area of focus, I think, over the next year and, and five years, 10 years, um, are the usage of data and analytics. And I think it's uh, nobody's going to be surprised that government organizations are some of the largest uh, creators, consumers um, of data, but I think historically they've been custodians of data. They haven't really harnessed the value of it. But what are you seeing in that realm? And and I I bring that lesson learned versus lesson observed um, analogy into here because I think there is a lot that can be learned from some of the data created um, and information extracted from it over the last year. Do you agree? Absolutely. In fact, I thought your ebook had a great little story about data within it about, you know, that, that we used to talk about, you know, there's all this information and, and we don't even use, you know, the vast majority of it. And now it's more about we're starting to be more aware of the data that we have, but is it data that we can analyze and consume and put to use? And so, you know, I mean, it is data is just one of the definitely one of the top 10 issues. I'm glad you had it in your ebook. Because, I mean, we still have far too many, I'll say, uh, decisions that are less data-driven and driven more by, I'll say, anecdote or by fear. And so 
how can we move to more evidence-based decision making? And 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 data is the prize. And so, you know, we're we're collecting more and more data by the moment, and new technologies and five G and things will help. But but we do have to spend the time making sure that data will, data is still like available to be consumed by others, to be able to be reused, to be able to be you know to trusted and 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 all those things. And so, data I think will continue to be one of the top priorities for government, along with IT modernization and cybersecurity. But um, but you know, it, it has a huge promise for us because not only does it have the sort of research elements, and you think back to the day when DoD released GPS data, and so you know, now I can go find my way home from with my smartphone, right? And so, the, this idea about entrepreneurial engines and advances in medicine and science and technology are just powerful, and and we still have like troves of information that need to get released and made easier to use, both within an agency and with the general public. Um, the the law that passed you know a year or two ago of foundations for evidence based policy making I think took some good steps about you know reinforcing the role of data leaders a CDO council and things like that but it's definitely something we need to continue to work on. Well, and one of the things that I've learned throughout my career, um, especially as I, I shifted my focus of just uh, the U.S. federal government into global entities at every level is that they all they all have the same challenge and i think one of the and and they're all cyclical i think all these challenges as you've seen throughout some of the things i've stated and and then i've seen in some of the the priorities that that you guys have laid out with act iac when you start to walk through these these areas of focus they they're all they're all uh, connected and we we talk about data and being able to be more data driven well one of the reasons why i think historically whether it's a government organization or even a private sector organization has failed to leverage the data that they have is because a lot of it is unstructured. And that comes from the lack of the intelligent automation process and the ability to digitize their processes and, and make them more efficient. Um, so a, as we look at some of these emerging technologies that are kind of driving and being able to um, help government see the value in data. What really stands out to you? Is it is it intelligent automation? Is it is it artificial intelligence? One of the things that I spoke about in my ebook is this new term that Gartner actually coined. I can't can't take credit for it, but hyper automation. Um, but all of this, I think, goes to really harness that value of the data. But what are some of the things that are really standing out in your opinion? Yeah, there's clearly a huge amount of passion around this sort of say continuum that starts with robotic process automation moving into intelligent automation and artificial intelligence. Uh, any event that we do at ACTIAC around those topics attracts like a great government interest and, and interest from industry too. I mean, there there is... You know, well, first and foremost, if you're not making progress in your IT modernization journey, it's going to be harder for you to rapidly adopt these new technologies. And then foot stomping on that, you need to adopt these new technologies. I mean, it is just, you mentioned the phrase, the future of work. And, and the future of work is really a powerful concept for us to wrap our heads around because it is a fundamental shift in the nature of jobs throughout the government, not just the IT jobs, but the mission jobs, everything from financial management to human resources to delivering the missions of the agency is changing because of what technology can do. And if you have a finite number of government 
personnel in an agency, wouldn't it be better to have those people focusing on the mission and outcomes of the agency and let the more, you know, rote tasks be done by machines? And so, you know, we're seeing, you know, there's a lot of uptake on robotic process automation within the federal government. 14 agencies or so have initiatives going on. Bots are proliferating. But but we need to be a little bit more holistic than that and think more broadly about what IA and and AI will bring to the change and sort of like the marriage of like, you know, 5G and IoT and, and machine learning. I mean, it's just it's just incredible. And so, you know, will we be on the cusp of that in the government or will we be lagging too far behind? Yeah, I, I think the the value that 5G brings, I think, has largely been understated because for a long time. I don't know if people really understood what it was really going to bring. I think it it's going to, especially let's say starting at the most localized levels, I think it's going to make the evolution of, of smart cities and the proliferation of smart cities increase dramatically just by being able to kind of process data and get some of that information back. Edge computing is going to be driven by that. Um, but what other, what other value do you see 5G bringing, uh, especially at the federal level? Well, I think it's that, you know, ability to be connected anywhere. We have to, like, lose the tether, as it were, right? I mean, it's another pandemic lesson learned, you know, that, uh, that you know, I need, I need everybody working collectively from any device at any time, from anywhere, and able to, like, seamlessly get to the information they need to get their job done. And so the proliferation of 5G, not only does it, like, completely be a game changer for, like, what it means to have smart devices in smart cities, but, but this whole idea about having access to the information and not being bound by the bandwidth limitations or, you know, or policies of the organization that, 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 that kept you from getting rapid access to what you needed. And so, I mean, I think, you know, as, as 5G becomes more prevalent in, in the things that we are involved in, I mean, it's just going to rapidly, you know, it's going to remove another barrier to the adoption of new technologies, right? Because, you know, you'll be able to have more throughput and so you'll be able to use more tools you'll be able to have access to more applications more rapidly and that's a beautiful world but you know will we be in a position to take advantage of that and so again you know don't don't go slow now on adopting new technology because you're going to fall really behind what so so when we look at 5g then what are you seeing uh, one of these emerging technologies that that we had kind of skimmed over was iot or internet of things um, what are you seeing on a government level there and beyond just smart cities? And when I speak to the future of government work, it's really, for me, it plays out in three different theaters. It's work, workforce, and then workplace. And I see the proliferation of IoT devices really helping these workplace scenarios become more data-driven um, and become smarter, more cost-efficient, uh, et cetera. But what other areas are you seeing IoT driving value within government? Well, I think, you know, I think you mentioned it in your ebook about like, you know, surveillance technologies and, and uh, situational awareness technologies are, are a big early place for IoT inside of agencies, as well as like, you know, RFID and tracking of devices and commodities and things like that. I think that there's energy around the sort of smart cities concept. I mean, you know, we looked at the private sector, you know, when I worked at Deloitte, Deloitte had this the smart building in Europe that was just like incredible 
that you know that knew you were coming and and knew what you would need when you got there and configured the spaces that were available to fit your needs you know i mean it was just like a, a wonderful powerful experience and and there's no reason why that can't be our experience inside of the places where we work in, in the us and in the government and stuff and so so I, I do think that there will be you know this this sort of like smart city smart buildings smart offices work we'll, we'll we'll see an upswing in activity in the years ahead which obviously then uh expands the conversation around cybersecurity, right because yeah I, I i saw an article about whether or not joe biden was going to be able to bring his peloton into the white house and what challenges that that brought for the the security specialists within the white house right. i think that, that, that's just the tip of it. the military a few years ago right yeah yeah exactly i mean there's i mean we look at solar winds and what else can be hacked so i think uh from a supply chain perspective uh you you need to ensure even the weakest link is as secure as possible Cybersecurity is like the, I'll say the the other like twin pillar of uh, federal technology priorities, right? If IT modernization is is one, cybersecurity goes hand in glove with it. There's no doubt that cybersecurity is a national imperative, you know. And I mean, we need to be like completely honest with ourselves about it. The the you know the intellectual capital and our competitive advantage is being stolen from us. And so you know if we're not paying attention, if the events of the last few weeks. And solar winds and things just doesn't help bring that home, you know, then heaven help you, you know, wake up because cybersecurity is a crucial importance. And, you know, and all the sayings about you need to bake it in rather than bolt it on are, are, you know, are really germane. And so what are we doing to rapidly adopt new technologies that will bring more security to us? And so I think, you know, progress has been made, as GAO would say, you know, I mean, I think there's like clear focus on cybersecurity across the government. But I, I will say, you know, there is still need for more speed and more agility and more reciprocity in cybersecurity. And this recognition that, you know, if you look at, you know, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about when I was on the federal CIO council and, you know, years ago, and, you know, tech was a thing, trust and internet connections, because federal agencies, you know, were enclaved and, and they had like thousands of internet connection points with no monitoring and stuff. And yet DOD could have like a dozen and a half gateways for, you know, millions of people. And so, so, you know, what could you do about tick then is completely different than what you should be doing now. Unfortunately, tick has moved on to tick 3.0 because in a cloud world, you know, a, a tick 1.0 solution just like thwarted your ability to be connected in the modern world. And so the world has shifted and our cybersecurity model has to shift. And we have to move away from, you know, that saying about, you know, hard perimeter crunchy on the outside, but soft and gooey in the middle. And that's why things like zero trust are so important. It's a big topic for ACT-IAC. You can go to our website and see reports that we've done recently with the government industry working together about this power of zero trust and stronger identity management. The future really will be a world about strong identity. You know, can you prove it's Wintergren? Are there attributes about me that ought to allow me to have access to information? Is data tagged so that it can be consumed by a guy named Wintergren with these credentials so that the, the world lights up differently from me than it does for you? breaks down the barrier of different networks that we still have now and recognizes that, you know, just because, you know, I got through the initial authentication doesn't mean I shouldn't be vetted and kept an eye on while I'm navigating around in the system. And I think that kind of brings it full circle because at the top of the show, we really talked about 
the need for legislation innovation. And solar winds was a great example. And, and I think this was um, really something that the government at least should be proud of, at least the DOD is, I think they saw some of this coming. I think perhaps not as quickly as it did uh, in, in some of the conversations I have with Katie Arrington, she talked about kind of five years down the road and what that looks like. But CMMC was put in place for this type of scenario and these supply chain type breaches. And I think that's an area where I think government has gotten ahead and, and actually thinking through the art of the possible in terms of cybersecurity and trying to harden their defenses to ensure that what does happen with some of these technologies like 5G, quantum computing, et cetera, that we're protected. And something like SolarWinds, even though it did happen, we learned from that, lesson learned, not observed, and and we were able to protect ourselves moving forward. Yes. I'll say yes and. The key, though, is to make sure that these processes help accelerate the adoption of technology rather than slow them down. And so, you know, so I, I think the efforts of everything from FedRAMP to CMNC are super important and super good. But also, I think there's a lot of lessons learned from FedRAMP as FedRAMP grew and improved around, you know, you wanted the, the purpose, the, the goal is extremely noble, like it's more secure cloud technology more quickly to more users, right? And so then the, the process for evaluation and monitoring and approval needs to be able to be done quick enough that you don't, again, lose that keeping up with the pace of technology change. Yeah, I completely agree. And so one last thing I do want to touch on before I give a chance to uh, leave our audience with some parting words is putting your, putting your CIO hat on. Over the past year, we've heard the word resilient and be a, being a more resilient organization um, and how they, uh, how they harden themselves, how they advance their mission and move forward and be able to take the, the unknowns and, and those impacts. If you're a CIO within a government organization now, what are you doing um, to make your organization more resilient, whether it's through uh, technology adoption, change management, et cetera? But what are your, what are your next steps there? Yeah. So I think that question that you asked is the profound one. What are you doing? I mean, resiliency is is like one of the top issues for us this year. I mean, you know, the pandemic lessons learned and, and how you move forward, because whether it's a pandemic or, you know, any number of other things, resiliency is just a top issue for us, right? Change is so swift and profound that the continued relevancy of, of certain business processes, certain jobs, even perhaps entire organizations is at stake. You know, you have to be willing to adapt rapidly or you're going to get left behind. Leadership through this pandemic is a classic example about having a laser-like focus on resiliency. And so, you know, are you asking yourself those questions about your relevancy and, and what has changed, you know, and, and how, are you changing with it? Are you adopting these new technologies or are you reluctant to adopt these new technologies? Have you changed your processes to accommodate the new normal? Are you sensitive to the impacts of a virtual-only workforce? and what that means for the people that work for you and stuff. And so there's there's a whole lot of questions that need to be asked to sort of help make you be aware of, number one, the importance of resiliency and the steps you need to be taken to make sure that you are indeed a resilient organization. I think those are some really, really unique perspectives. So I, I appreciate you kind of putting that CIO hat on for us real quick. Uh, any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with today? <laughs> well, you know... It, 
times of change are times of opportunity. And, uh, and there is no doubt that we're a boatload of change. You know, if you look at the sort of trifecta of the rapid pace of technology change, and then you throw on top of that a pandemic, and then you throw on top of that a transition to a new administration, boy, oh boy, are there a lot of opportunities to excel, as they say. And so, you know, remember this, that we've talked a lot about the technology side of it, but, but at the end of the day, the technology will be there. And this needs to be more of a conversation around leadership and your your willingness to be a proactive leader to help drive this change forward. Um, starting with why, making sure you're focused on the outcomes that will matter would clearly make a difference. But from a personal standpoint, I would say, you know, never lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, that you are an amplifier as a leader and, uh, and, and, and your actions speak a lot louder than your words. I'm reminded, uh, you know, just a few days ago, Dr. Jack London, the executive chair of CACI, passed away. And, uh, and Dr. London wrote a book called Character, The Ultimate Success Factor. And, uh, and it's a powerful message about, you know, by choosing to do the right things, you'll learn how to define and gain success and live with yourself. And your character will absolutely determine the kind of life that you will live. And and uh, and so, you know, your example, I think Larry Bossidy said it well um, in, in the book Execution, you know, leaders get the behaviors that they exhibit and tolerate. And so if you are slightly jaded, slightly cynical, slightly afraid of these new technologies or new approaches, then that will be an amplifying chamber for all of those around you. And and your organization will not thrive in this post-pandemic world. But if you can be like a lightning rod for change to help be the confidence and the voice that, that this new path will be better and, and to then demonstrate through data and successes that it is actually getting better, then you will help drive a much better future for your organization. Wow, I think those are those are really, really good takeaways. Dave, thank you for being on the show today. This has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. And if you want a copy of the ebook we discussed during today's episode, you can visit opentext.com backslash public sector or just drop me a note and I'll gladly share it with you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.